Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to the Age of Infinite. Throughout history, humans have made significant transformational changes, which in turn have led to the renaming of periods we call ages. You've personally just experienced the information age and what a ride it has been. Now that you might want to consider that we could be living through or transitioning to a new age, the age of infinite, an age that is not defined by scarcity and abundance, but by a redefined lifestyle consisting of infinite possibilities and infinite resources. The ingredients for an amazing sci-fi story that has come to life as together we create a new definition of the future. Now, our podcast is brought to you by the Project Moon Hut Foundation, where we look to establish a box with a roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut, through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem. Then what we want to do is use those endeavors, that par those paradigm-shifting thinking, that those innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. Today, we're going to be exploring a great topic. It is space experiences provoke better life on Earth. And who better to help us with this is my friend, John Spencer. How are you, John? I'm doing very well, David. Fantastic. John is the founder of this space tourism society. He's an architect. He's been involved with the space community for over 30 years. And for those of you who are new to the program, you might not know, you probably don't know this, that I do no research on the topic we're talking about. I don't look anything up. I don't get an outline in advance. I don't have anything except for a few nuggets from the conversations we've had about what we'll be talking about, such as to create the title. But I did find out or looked up and John, you were the former president of the National Space Society. When? Uh, actually, I, I've never been the president of the National Space Society, but I've on, been on the board and was around during the founding oh, wow. of the organization. Okay. And I've chaired different committees over the years and I co-chaired the International Space Development Conference we had here in LA in 2014. So I, I really like this National Space Society. It's an incubator group for new people to the space industry. It's just very good, good people. Now, the reason I ask is uh, I had attended a few of the programs and I didn't know if I had met you there. Yeah, I, we may have met in the past, but uh, you know how it is when you're at a conference, you meet a lot of well, people. I, I don't go to conferences. The only conferences I've been to are the nationals is the pioneering national space summit in with Tomlinson in New York. The another, my first one was the uh, event in Hawaii, the great giant leap where there was Buzz Aldrin and 50 of the top people, in the space industry. And then I've been to two or three national space society events because uh, the guys at NASA Ames had brought me. And so I didn't know if I had met you, I think it was 2015, 16, 17, that might've been it. So I didn't know. So that said, okay, so we might or may or may not have met. Do you have an outline for us? I do. I have five bullet points. Okay. Can you please share them with us? Sure. Number one is the space experience economy. Number two, the space tourism industry. The next big thing. And number four, space people as futurists. And number five, going outward allows us to go inward. So as we always do, let's start with number one, space, uh, space experience economy. Right. So um, 
I've been involved, as you mentioned, in this area for a long time. And I try to observe what's happening with the industry and <clears throat> provoke ideas and things uh, moving in a direction that's more encompassing and more uh, effective in us getting outward into the solar system. So about a dozen years ago, I realized that we were really establishing what I call the space experience economy. And I always use words like economy or investment or those areas because we were always dealing with investment groups and uh, fundraising for things so we can do all this work. It doesn't come for free. So I've realized there's three main mediums through which people experience space. Uh, the first one is people actually going to space, either doing suborbital flights or orbital flights, eventually going lunar flyby and so forth. So those are real space experiences. The second medium is Earth-based experiences, like going to the National Space Museum or a space camp, a space theme park, um, a convention, so a conference. And the fourth is media, television, movies, games, uh, even reading a book on space. <clears throat> so those three mediums are synergistic. In other words, they work together to provoke people's interest and maintain their interest. And another part of the economy. Before, before you jump to, I, how many space theme parks are there? Well, the first one ever is one I actually created and designed and we built in uh, Japan, opened in 1991 called Space World. And uh, that was a totally space themed theme park. But then at Disney, there's pavilions, like for example, Mission Space Pavilion gets 4 million visitors just going through that attraction. Uh, there are Space Camp. There's um, plans on the books right now for large scale space and Mars themed entertainment projects, capitalizing on the popularity of Mars and so forth. So there has always been space attractions. Disney has been one of the great provokers of these things from even a mission to the moon that you might have seen at Disneyland. Yep. Yes, I did. Yeah. There's even, although it's not exactly real space, there's the Star Wars attractions, the rides, those kind of things. So, and whenever there's a world's fair, which still happen, there's always space pavilions, which are more than just a museum. They're much more interactive, more entertaining. And then if you really get into, again, the kind of combination with media, there's over a thousand IMAX theaters around the world and their most popular shows, other than volcanoes, for example, are all space things. Like, for example, the space station one narrated by Tom Cruise, or uh, Dream is Alive. So there are physical places you can go to experience space, including Eclipse cruise ship tours. Uh, and that's a whole other area, which is astronomy, is part of the space experience that we could get into down the line. But it's a, it's interesting because when you said it, and as much as I've been doing this for six years, I really drew a blank of when it came to the space theme park. I, space camp, I've heard. I've, I know that they had the, the NASA and the European Space Agency have these events that uh, kids or adults will go and they'll learn about space. But I never really put theme park into that category. And I do know the World's Fair has some components of space, but you tied in the Star Wars, which you put that into the theme park, which is an interesting categorization, and IMAX theaters as part of that experiential, which I had just not, I had, I, 
if you had asked me prior to saying it, David, can you list? I probably couldn't have got two or three off, which this is interesting that I had, I didn't even see this. Well, it's very interesting because there's a lot more space experiences and activities than most people see because they're either focused on one area. And what we try to do is look at the broad big picture. That's why we call it the space experience economy. And if you want to see it here, a good number, uh, almost as many people in the United States visit space facilities, including the Kennedy Space Center, Johnson Space Center, as go to both of the Universal Studios movie theme parks. Huh. The theme parks are get 19.9 million annual visitors. This was 2019 numbers. And 19.2 uh, million people go to all these other facilities. Now, this is where you physically get up and go to a place. This doesn't count at all. The 120 million people a year who visit science and technology centers or go to IMAX theaters. Um, and we're going to be having a new quarter billion dollar pavilion here in Los Angeles at the California Science Center, which will have the Endeavour Space Shuttle on a vertical position on an external fuel tank, a real tank with real side rocket boosters. Uh, and that pavilion will open up in about three years. So we're gonna have a beautiful hub here in Los Angeles, which is a key area of space activities that will be a nucleus, a place where programs and activities happen. And it's a real space shuttle on a dramatic vertical uh, position of full stack. The, the, you said in 2019, it was 19.2 for going to facilities. What, how much was Disney you had said? Well, I only count the Mission Space Pavilion, 3.9 million people. Okay. But actually physically go through that ride, which is a trip to Mars. The, uh, so while we're at it, just because I'd like to have them down, it's an interesting <laughs> list. Can you give a few others that are not only in US space, but globally so that I, I'd like to, I, I didn't know you've expanded my thinking past where I was in terms of this Earth-based, uh, I know about analog missions, which are the on-Earth missions that people do as an experience. What others that you didn't cover would you add to that list? Well, at Space World, we were getting 1.4 to 1.6 million annual visitors. Um, then there's many science centers around the world. And when you get into talking about planetariums and observatories, for example, Griffith Observatory here in Los Angeles, you have tens of millions of people a year around the world, Asia, Europe, South America, that go to planetariums and observatories to look at the stars. And they always have programs and educational programs and STEM education. So there's Basically, I always like to tell people we're not alone in the space community. There's a lot of people out there involved in all these location facilities and making movies and TV. And I'm quite involved in the movie TV world as an advisor consultant uh, to uh, those kind of things. And that's through the Science and Entertainment Exchange, where we provide scientific and engineering type advice to movie producers, directors, and so forth. So there's a lot of people out there. Then, yeah. And you didn't even, you, I, I'm just throwing in some others just for my list. You have a zero, zero G experience. Oh, sure. You have the zero guy. Well, let me get into that just for a second. Um, but sure. just to run off a few more numbers, the National Air and Space Museum gets 8 million visitors a year. Uh, 
the Kennedy Space Center gets 1.5 to 1.8 million visitors a year. And that's been going up quite a bit because of the Space uh, X launches and so forth. <clears throat> so there's a lot of people we can reach with wonderful, amazing ideas and then engage them in the space community in their variable areas, whether they're designers or chefs or artists. So there's a huge opportunity for outreach. And one of the core positive things about space is that positive, exciting view of the future. Again, we'll get into that in a moment. But that's a really healthy and important part of the whole space uh, experience is it's a positive view of the future. Now, what's also interesting with the space experience economy is you have different levels of experience. For example, you know, going to a space theme park or a space movie, then taking a zero gravity flight, then a whole brand new area just opened up with stratos the stratosphere trips with our friends Jane and Tabor at Space Perspective. They just finished raising $7 million uh, to develop their balloon and gondola trip to the stratosphere. Then you have suborbital flight, you have orbital flight, and eventually- And, and I, think, I think their, their price is $125,000 per passenger. That's correct. Okay. And uh, just a beautiful gondola. It's very soft, uh, easy mission. So it opens a wide range of, this to a wide range of audience, particularly older people who don't want to deal with G-forces, but want to have a space experience. So what's great about this from a business standpoint, the economy, is you can have a customer essentially for life who's interested in space. And as a young person seeing the movies, as they go through a career and they become more affluent, they can go through ever increasingly real space experiences that take more time and money and more risk, ultimately having real space experiences. So for sponsors or people involved in this who are investing in rocket companies and so on and so forth, um, there's a customer you can have for life. And what's fascinating is when last few months, it's very interesting, the two wealthiest people on earth, Bezos and Elon, are the two wealthiest men in the world, and they both started their own rocket companies. And there are several other billionaires involved from Richard Branson, uh, Paul Allen was involved before he passed away, uh, several others investing in starting space tourism or space enterprise companies so it gives the whole idea of a space experience economy growing and diversifying and being more welcoming to a wider range of participants. And that itself is very exciting. People want to participate in something special and space is very special and important for humans to move forward. The, uh, you, were, you said you were going to add something to the zero G. What were you going to add to the zero G experiences? That's the uh, stratosphere flights. Uh, okay, just so that you can that you can experience or take that next level of desire to be in space, as you can hop on a zero g flight, or you can this new perspective for the seven seven million. It's an yeah. interesting that they got that seven million because I think they had a company out in Arizona and they had commitments to Arizona and it didn't work out and they just moved to Florida, and immediately uh, no, they got uh, their, seven their million. Par Paragon. Space development is doing very well. That's the one that Jane and Tabor co-founded. Oh, they were they were Paragon with um, Grant. Yeah. Oh, and okay. After their Biosphere Two experience, they which they were so involved in the science of all this in environmental systems, they started Paragon, which developed all kinds of environmental life control systems for spacecraft. 
and and Grant, I was last I Grant, uh, what's his last name? Anderson. What's Grant's last name? Uh, oh, oh, I will look it up. I um, he's been on the show. Um, what is it? It's uh, Paragon. Uh, Grant Anderson. I was right. Yeah. Grant had said that the, the business, his business, is booming uh, because of everything that's been going on. It is, and then they went off and started. Uh, uh, Worldview, uh, which was the balloon to space, but the, the investors in that wanted to make it more on a science level for Worldview, and they're doing quite well. So they spun off and created Space Perspectives specifically to be involved in the space experience industry. And I think they're great. They're just doing a wonderful job. I've never, I don't know if I've ever met them. Oh, I'll, you got to get to know these guys. Jane's wonderful. Uh, great speaker. She was our first guest for our space, uh, one of our webinars. So uh, they're just really interesting people. And they're literally pioneering a whole medium of space experience that will be to a very broad audience. Because a lot of people with wealth or older people, they can't take the G-forces of even a Virgin Galactic type flight. But the balloon flight is very soft. It's eight hours going up and having a great time and coming back. They have a restroom and a bar on board. They're going to have weddings in the stratosphere. I mean, that's really cool stuff. And when do they plan on? When do they, they plan be having on? passenger flights within three to four years? And they're based out of uh, Kennedy Space Center, actually in facilities at the old space shuttle landing uh, place. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I saw. I saw something in the. I think you, we've already shared, I don't do a lot of following of these things. I just learn and I, I'm in the ecosystem. So I read about the 7 million and I was like, wow, that's pretty fast how they got that money. So they're very well connected, it appears too. Yeah, and some of their investors are very, I can't get into that, but very interesting investors. And a number of them can go on to the next round of funding and the next round of funding and they have priority to choose whether they want to invest in the next level type of thing. Yeah, they have a first option. Exactly, first so, right of refusal. Yep, type. first right of yeah. refusal. So great, so we, anything else that you could think of while we're talking that adds to these theme parks and experiences that uh, we haven't covered? We have Space World, Disney, Space Camps, World Fairs, uh, Ellipse, Ellipse, we have the, the theaters, we have the Space and Mars experiences, we have Analog, we have Zero G. Any others that you can think of that would round that well, out? I, I have a perspective that even a space conference like we were talking about earlier, yep. that is in itself a space experience in that you're in a mix with other people of common interest and you're learning and you're interacting and you're being part of a vibrant growing community. So that is, in my mind, the space conferences and events, a space experience, just like almost a zero gravity flight or something like that. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. It's, yeah. That's where I, I don't know if the first experience I went to, which was the, uh, the Great Giant Leap out in Hawaii, when I showed up, there was nobody who was new to the industry. I mean, we're talking Buzz Aldrin. We're talk, talking about the person who was involved in putting the lunar lander on the uh, the comet. 
I think that we had, I mean, everybody was top and they, they were talking at a PhD level. So one individual walked over to me, says, why are you here? I said, I don't know. And he said, this is not a fun event. This is real space. So my first experience was traumatic. It wasn't fun. I can totally relate to that because uh, my background, as you mentioned, is I'm an architect, but for over 30 years, I've been involved with outer space architecture, helping to pioneer that field. And when I went in the early 80s uh, to aerospace conferences, which were still in Cold War era and it was almost spooky, uh, people would ask me, why are you here? You're going to design a building for rockets to be built at and stuff, you know, which is kind of cool. But uh, I can relate to your experience. Yeah, and I, I knew nothing. I knew yeah. nothing. I mean, they're talking about dragons. I thought it was Game of Thrones. They're right, talking right. about kilograms. <laughs> they're talking about, and they were just, uh, my computer almost caught on fire because all I was doing was Google searching everything because I had right. no clue what, the, it, what they were talking about. It took me a few hours and pretty soon I felt like the 13th warrior, if you've seen the movie. Yeah. Where yes. and Antonio Banderas starts to learn the language of the people so that he can right. communicate. That's what happened. I had to I had to learn this whole new language in a matter of hours. Otherwise, I would have been lost. And so, I I've never done most of these things that you're talking about. I've heard about them. Uh, uh, going to movies, yes, and IMAX sure. there, yes. But uh, interesting, cool. All right. So in terms of the growth of the industry from the levels of experiences. How does that continue to evolve this uh, space experience economy? It's going far more international now. Uh, it used to be primarily United States, Russia, some in Japan, but now China, India, <clears throat> uh, England, Japan again. The space activities and groups in these other countries are maturing, growing, collaborating, uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, is very aggressive in recruiting and growing. Brazil has got a, a fascinating growing space economy because they have launch pads right on the equator, which has very big positive effects for launching vehicles in the equatorial orbit. So part of what's happening- so, so ju just, just for one second, uh, so I know some of this in terms of the closer you are to the equator, the better you can launch. But can you give me your definition of why being in like Papua New Guinea or being in, in Brazil is a benefit? Sure. The Earth is rotating over a thousand miles per hour. So if you launch on the equator to an equatorial orbit, in other words, you are right around the equator, you pick up a thousand miles. Also, you don't have to transfer from a lower latitude or whatever to an equatorial orbit, you're there. And you save there for a lot of fuel, uh, your main fuel, but also on maneuvering fuel and so on and so forth. So Brazil is ideally suited, which is why ESA has their launch facilities there. There was also an interesting program, which is about to be reactivated. Uh, that was a joint venture between the US, Russia, and, the, and Norway called Sea Launch, which was a converted oil rig uh, which would launch rockets directly from the water on the equator. They had a command ship. They did 25 missions of launching satellites, and that's coming back into form too. So you'll see uh, countries and groups who don't have a good location to launch developing sea launch capabilities. And you can launch from a converted aircraft carrier, for example, uh, right on the equator. And that economically is a big benefit. It's costly to have the aircraft carrier, but 
when you look at volume number of satellites or human missions or cargo missions to space, particularly cargo, there's a huge advantage of launching from the equator. I, I can't mention the client, but one of the largest port holders in the world is one of my clients. And I remember maybe it must, must have been about five years ago, I had a pre, I was working with them and I asked the question, not being in the space industry, I said, who's going to control the return of product to earth and how is that going to go through customs and how is it going to be received? So we have ports in every country that has a, a on the water. How are space products that come from Mirth, Moon and Earth, as you've watched through the videos, how is Mirth type product going to be brought back to Earth? So even part of this is, could countries have their ports at sea so you could bring in something from space to go to Slovakia or to Lithuania? And they would that would be their own port system that they can generate from Mirth-based uh, product, which I hadn't thought about in that way now that you're mentioning it. That's a very excellent question. And uh, the US lands on the water. In fact, when uh, the Dragon mission landed in the water, uh, their, their crew mission, it's the first time in 35 years we've done that. All Russian missions and Chinese missions land on the land. They have such open land areas and so forth. But this gets into another part that briefly can go into on the space experience economy is that space law is one of the fastest segments of growth in the space community because we are getting into exactly what you just brought up are all the issues of treaties, of all the issues of business, all the issues of legality stuff, all of those things. And you know, all space law is based on maritime law because that was the precedence that they were able to use. And when you really get into our next area of space tourism, it's really, I've modeled that after the cruise line industry since the early 80s, because that's a good business industry model. And therefore the maritime law uh, applies even more. And when you think of any vehicle in space, even the space station, although the space station is like a port in space, it is in itself a spaceship. So everything we talk about for space is ships. So they have to have a captain and crew and that kind of training and that kind of attitude. So it's a very nautical kind of community we're getting into this merger of aviation and nautical development, which of course we have again with aircraft carriers and the Navy and so forth. Even a moon base or a Mars base, you really have to think of as a land-based ship uh, commanded by a crew and a captain and a crew. And that's a logical, straightforward way and it helps with the lawyers when they're crafting new types of laws and treaties for the commercialization of space. And I never thought in the Project Moon Hut, the Moon Hut being structured that way. Uh, so I can understand how the, I can understand how that's needed. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar, you know, Dennis Wingo, I'm assuming. Sure, Dennis Den is great. Dennis and I one day were in his place looking at his screens and I, I didn't understand what he did. So I said, show me some pictures. And he shows me some pictures. And I said, oh, you're a space logistics company. I said, we have air, land, and sea. And now you have space logistics. You have cargo containers and vehicles that go in space to deliver product. And he said, I'm a space logistics company. I hadn't thought about that. 
So the the captain, the crew, do you also consider that, for example, if they're a space logistics company, they could just be theoretically a driver, and then it's no longer the same as aviation with captain and crew. Well, when you get into AI and automation, we're even that, yep, yeah, cargo carrying spacecraft that uh, will grow. That's actually. If you want to invest in space business, space logistics is actually a very good area to invest in. But that's a key part of the space experience economy is how do you serve eventually orbital cruise ships and orbital yachts, you know, and all these elements have to be serviced and supplies and people and all that. So again, looking at say the cruise line industry, they have extraordinary logistics of how a huge cruise ship comes in the port, passenger and luggage come off, new passengers legs come on all the food supplies fuel it's amazing how they turn around these giant complex devices and cruise ships uh, within a day so logistics your point is very very important and good is going to be a key driver in the scalability of the space experience economy uh, so all those issues which are uh, infrastructure from the laws to the logistics to the launch places, all of those areas need to grow and grow rapidly and smartly so that the economy in space, and like I love what you talk about, the hut and the moon and the economy uh, can accelerate and diversify and become healthy and self-sustaining. And I, I don't remember what videos I've sent to you, but one of the big challenge that I think with the space industry is it's so spacey. And it, the Project Moon Hut and what we're working on is converting that to, to la a language that people can understand. So we have the mirth economy and the mirth e uh, e economics so that we have this, the next iteration from this planet Earth is it's when we when a, when a person like me thinks of space before I started in this, I thought of space. It goes out, it goes out, it goes out, it goes out. You go Mars and Pluto, uh, Jupiter, and then all the way out to Pluto and keeps on going. And the Mirth ecosystem, which is the moon and earth ecosystem, if you think of it kind of a construct, a, a limitation border, that our future first, our next future is to fill that moon and earth economy. And what's going to be in it will be what you're talking about, many of the items in terms of experiences. People aren't going to go to Mars as an experience. They're going to go there to live. They're, but you can have that within the Mirth uh, ecosystem. So yes, we need to accelerate it, but we also need to turn it into, I'm going to call it English, meaning that it's a language that people can understand. Well, I totally agree with you. And that's one of the reasons many years ago, if we want to go on to the next uh, sure. point, space tourism, um, that... In the early 80s, I realized, because I started space architecture in the late 70s, that to have a growing space community, you had to have tourism as part of it. And because tourism is something, like you said, people relate to it. There's a language there. People like to travel. For many people, going to space is a dream come true type of thing. So that's why I always felt and have been pioneering this area for a long time. In the early days, everyone laughed at space tourism, and I have stories of being thrown out of Rockwell twice. I got a whole story there. <laughs> do you want to share? Do you want to share one? I can tell you later on that one. They always throw you out the back <laughs> of the building. It's a really big building too. So um, 
But when you think about what people relate to, they relate to travel. And the adventure travel industry is a huge industry, larger than most people. That means you're going to exotic places like Antarctica, which gets 30,000 people a year for tourists on these luxury uh, exploration yachts. Uh, you go to Christmas Island, you go to all kinds of unique places. Once you've been to 20 or 30 of these places, where do you, what do you do? You wanna go to space. So the space tourism industry really kicked off. It started on April 28, 2001, when a friend of ours, Dennis Tito, lifted off from Baikonur on a Russian rocket capsule and then went, spent seven days on board the International Space Station. And he's the first person to actually write a check to actually fly to space. And he had a wonderful experience. Since then, in this, what I call first wave of space tourism, which was 2001 to 2009, seven other people paid and trained in Russia and flew in a Russian rocket capsule and spent a week to 12 days on the International Space Station and returned safely. And they all had wonderful life-changing So you said there were seven people? Yes. Okay. And the last one uh, who founded Circus, the, the Circus Group uh, in Las Vegas, uh, flew in 2009. So we had about a decade lull between people flying because they retired the shuttle and a few other odds and ends happen. We're now entering the second wave, what I call the second wave of space tourism, which is gonna eclipse the first one in terms of numbers and places eventually to go in space and activities to do. And you've got, like I say, the two richest men in the world building rocket companies and space tourism as a part of their business plans. Uh, Axiom Space <clears throat> eventually wants to host a number of tourists going to their modules and they're designing their habitation modules to be added to the International Space Station for tourists and for business development uh, in space. Uh, Bob Bigelow has inflatable structures in Earth's orbit right now as test modules and an inflatable module attached to the International Space Station. And I've always been into inflatable architecture for space because uh, modules come compact and then they inflate, grow uh, once they're in space. So there's a whole bunch of advantages uh, architecturally when you talk about space architecture for that. But then you have, you know, the suborbital flights, you have Jane and Tabor, and eventually you're going to have uh, a number of companies providing real space experience into low Earth orbit. So that's going to grow. Now, as I mentioned, I modeled the industry, space tourism after cruise lines for a whole bunch of reasons. And since the mid-90s, I've been designing and developing a concept I call orbital super yachting modeled after ocean super yachts. I like to take Earth-based industries that we understand and know and are mature and translate them physically, design-wise engineering into space because we have a foundation from which to work from, from the economics, the financing, the operations, the training, the decommissioning, all of those elements are firmly established on Earth-based industries use those as models for space space and you have a great foundation from which to work from and the investor community is more confident because they see how something is done on earth and can better relate to how it could be performed in space now with the yachts it's very interesting because it's extraordinarily hard to make a profit in space right now because of all the technology except the russians have made huge profits flying the space tourists they made 95 percent profit and eventually went from $10 million with Dennis up to $45 million, the last person who flew. Uh, but they made 95% profit on all of those because they had an extra seat 
on the Soyuz vehicle that they basically just sold to a civilian and so forth. It's, it's, it's a shame that they didn't put that, reinvest it back in because that's where they're now kind of struggling with the next iteration of the Russian space system within their environment. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you, you've got uh, this. So it was 10 million at the point. Now it's 45 million. What is it uh, to go well, on then, to, to if then they, were, to, then they were charging uh, NASA 75? Yeah, they, yeah. They, <laughs> well, those guys were really cleaning up. And you're yeah. right, there's, their space program went commercial, but then the government brought it back in. And they're, they're doing new things right now. They like making money on space travelers. Uh, and but you, you could theoretically say that the Russians had a space tourism company. They were bringing these Americans who wanted to go or, or part of the, any part of the world, the Japanese, they were bringing them up to space and they were just the tourist people. They were the, they were the, they were the, they were the logistics side of it, but they, to some degree, were giving these people an experience ride. Oh, it was all about the space experience of fulfilling a dream. And the company who booked all of their passage, every single one of the seven people who flew, <clears throat> And one guy, Charles Simone, flew twice. He liked it so much. The company who booked all their flights and arranged all this is called Space Adventures, based in Virginia. And they're still planning all kinds of new things, including the next big thing, which is Lunar Flyby by Private Space Enterprise. And Elon wants to beat them to doing that. So there's a whole new space lunar flyby race going on right now, which is very interesting. Uh, but when I wanted to go back to the yachts just for a minute, in that uh, what's fascinating is the reason ocean yachts, super yachts exist, and there's four on the oceans right now, which cost over $1 billion to design and build, four super yachts, they call them mega yachts. They don't exist to make a profit, a cash profit, like you do in the cruise line industry. They're totally different business models. Super yachts exist for social profit. That's pride and prestige and social standing and branding and reward. All of those elements that the richest people in the world and the richest corporations covet. And they deeply compete with each other for the biggest, coolest uh, super yacht with the most artwork and the most submarines and toys and all kinds of different things. But if you leverage that, and you say, I'm designing, which I have done a lot of work on, a real orbital super yacht. And my plan is to convince, and I'm fairly along the way with this, can't, again, can't talk about it type stuff. Uh, the richest corporations or individuals or families in the world, that they can be the first, essentially the Neil Armstrong of orbital super yachting. And the people in corporations with high who are highly competitive, that's very sexy. That's something they really want. But to have orbital super yachts, you have to have orbital super yacht clubs, like you have ocean going clubs, right, for the, the super yachts. And you have to have the infrastructure and the, the legal infrastructure and the insurance. And eventually you need to have a Coast Guard kind of system. Uh, so we're going to need a Space Guard system, which is separate and in addition to Space Guard, I mean, the Space Force, which is, I, I'm, Space Force is a good thing. Well, no, I'm, no, I, actually, Peter Gerritsen went over the Coast Guard and the correlation to the Space Force. So he was tying them together, uh, saying that 
the the Space Force will, to some degree, act, at least in the beginning, like the Coast Guard. Yes, but then it'll diversify because the, the, like the Blue Water Navy and the US Coast Guard work very well together because the Coast Guard is structured to deal with the consumer market, rescue, environmental issue, uh, law enforcement, all that. And the Blue Water Navy doesn't want to deal with any of that stuff. It right. often do its stuff. That's what's going to happen with a Space Force and with the Space Guard Service, and that's good. They're both doing different things. In a time of war, Coast Guard gets consumed into the Navy type of thing. But you know, so, so for for those of you who are listening in, just to kind of break character for a moment here, is listening in. There is an interview by Peter Gerritsen, and he t- we talk very much about what the role of this the Coast Guard is and the Space Force. And I will be honest with anybody listening that to, to cover that topic, it was kind of challenging for me because I thought it was going to be very military oriented. But it yet talked about uh, protecting the seas and then protecting the oceans or protecting air so in space so that people can have uh, commerce and can live freely. Now, if you agree or disagree with the Americans' position on it, that's another story. But just what these Coast Guard's role and position was, it'd be interesting interview to listen to. So back again, John. Okay. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. Uh, but for commerce, you do have to have protection. Uh, you have to have rescue. You have to have eventually law enforcement, environmental protection, all of those elements, which we need to have in Earth's orbit eventually around the moon and on the moon as well. So this infrastructure we're talking about is growing and it's growing organically in that more people from around the world are getting involved and moving all this stuff forward. Now, in my mind, the next big thing that's going to happen in the space tourism industry is going to be a commercial flyby of the moon. That's going to be a major leap forward for the space experience, space tourism industry. And Elon is planning to do that. He made a big announcements last year. Uh, space Adventures is planning to do that. The Russians might scoop everybody and do it first although they're more government and private enterprise. But one of the things I've always felt um, about the Apollo program, and I was uh, 13 years old when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, so I was very into all this from that that time period, very influenced by it, is that the Apollo program gave a wonderful gift to all of humanity, and that was seeing Earth rise. The Earth rising above the rim of the moon. And what that gave humanity was a perspective that Earth is a place, a place in space. And it's our place in space. So the Apollo program allowing us to see Earth rise, I think, was just extraordinary. And the next time humans will see a live Earth rise is pretty well going to be done by private enterprise, one of these space companies flying two space travelers around the moon and coming right back at figure eight. That is going to be amazing. And that's going to truly establish space tourism industry as an industry. So because, when, you know, when, when you think of that from a 13 year old <clears throat> to today, what, go, what, what, what excitement or what does that mean to you? It means humanity has an extraordinary, noble, exciting future ahead of us and that 
we civilians who are not aerospace engineers can be part of that and be influential in it. So that has driven me for all these decades. And it's been an extraordinary, exciting, challenging many times career to be an outer space architect, and to be a pioneer in the space tourism, space experience industry. But if you really think about it, humans are phenomenal in what we understand about the universe, what we will eventually understand, and our abilities to do things, do noble good things. And space is the core part of that because we're moving outward. It's a very future-oriented thing. And that leads us to the next point I really want to get across. And this is one of my pet peeves. I think you'll relate to this very well. <laughs> okay. okay. Number three, we're, we're, we're moving to three, the next big thing? Uh, we're moving to four. Oh, okay. So, uh, we're on number four, the space people as futurists, okay? Right. So it's fascinating culturally that space people, and I mean people involved in the space industry, private enterprise, aerospace, enter space entertainment, holding, never think of themselves as futurists. But when you do think about it, we are futurists. We're always talking about 5, 10, 20 years down the line, the future of humanity, colonies in space, moon bases. And there's a vibrant, huge futurist culture and community out there too. But we never seem to kind of connect between the futurist and the space community. And part of our job with conferences we're doing and events is to purposely connect the futurist community and the space community with the idea in mind, we will accelerate both of those communities in new ways, exciting ways and important ways to move forward, creating a better future for all humanity. Part of what we're talking about here, a better life on earth. Yeah. But a good example, just a quick example. 15 years ago, for example, none of us that I know of in the space world knew about 3D printing. But now it's a critical part of mission planning to have 3D printers on board your spacecraft or your moon base or whatever, because of there's a zillion reasons why those are advantageous to have. That's just one example. So the more we forecast the multiple tracks of future industries and things that are happening, see where they converge and, and accelerate, that is a huge advantage from a business standpoint and an industry standpoint for the space community, but I also think it enhances the value of the futurist community. So part of our job is making those connections. And it's interesting that you've, uh, first of all, I hadn't put those two together. Now that, that's a surprise to me. Given, uh, given the, what we're working on, I would not, I didn't bring them together, which I should have, that was my error. But at the same time, I know why it comes back to that language. There's this, this ex, there is in Project Moonhot, we've defined five avatars. We have avatar number one, which is the person in the space industry. Second one is a person who works for the space industry, but might not be a space person. You could be in the accounting department, be fantastic at accounting, but not be interested in space. Then there's the third, which is the enthusiast. There's people who go to and do these experiences that you're talking about, and they can't wait. They can't wait to go to see a rocket launch. They can't wait to go on a, uh, uh, an analog mission. They can't wait to go to space camp. Then there are the opportunistic people who would like to make money and see opportunities within it. And the last one is the social and purpose-driven. 
And you can be multiples of those. You could be enthusiast and be an opportunistic person. And I think that the challenge that you're talking about as this futurist is that I don't know if you can bring them in. I think what has to happen is the space industry has to change so it is no longer a space industry. It is what it is. It's just, it's not special, it's not different. It is the space industry. It's just another one of those means to get and do something. And that's where that language has to change again. I totally agree with you. Uh, and language is such an important part. And that's why I use nautical terms, you know, ships and so forth, uh, ports in space. Uh, and the whole idea of the space experience. So space tourism is part of the space experience, but we, we use a wider, by saying space experience industry, it's a wider breadth yeah. concept and easier for integrating our futurist friends into it. Because or urban space adventures, you know, yeah. having, having that, that says, okay, you can have this adventure and it brings it back, I'm gonna bring it back down to earth. So I agree, yeah. Oh, it does. And, and, and a, an example I should have brought up uh, when we were talking about uh, the range of space experiences, a friend of ours, uh, Ryan Holmes, who you really want to interview sometime, has a company called Space VR. And he's pioneering integrating float tanks where you're in this tank of wa warm water you're floating in. Oh. So it feels like you're in zero gravity. So now, now you're getting the full immersion, literally, yeah, exactly. the full immersion of VR while floating in this dimension, three-dimensional world. Exactly. Wow. Warm water, salts, and uh, their company is growing. Uh, and they actually have a live feed from the International Space Station. So when you're seeing in VR and floating, you're seeing exactly what astronauts would see when they're uh, orbiting Earth, where it's nighttime or daytime. So that's a really interesting convergence of entertainment and technology with, via VR and floating and space and cameras, high fidelity cameras on the space station. Have, have you tried it? I haven't actually, uh, but uh, I, Ryan's invited me to do that. I just have, it's COVID time, so I'm not doing anything. <laughs> yeah, but, but as soon as I can, I want to do that. But where, where is he out of? He is, where he's in the San Francisco area. I think. Okay. But Ryan Holmes, and one of the things that, that be moving beside beyond the futurist part is that whole point of essentially going outward allows us to go inward. And I'm sure, have you interviewed Frank White about I've, overview effect? I, yes, I've, uh, I did Frank quite some time ago. Uh, yes, I, and I do start off the presentations that I do deliver, I start off with this uh, a construct, which I don't know if I, I think, I don't know if I sent you this one video, but the overview effect concept. So you can go into it and then I'll share with you if you don't cover that one thing that I think is valuable for uh, as part of it. Go ahead. What's going, going outward allows us to go inward. Yes. And uh, I'd love to see your, your video on that. So Frank White, as you know, uh, in the mid eighties observed that the astronauts and cosmonauts at the time have really some deep experiences going to space. Not everyone, but a lot of people do. And seeing the Earth from Earth's orbit or from uh, lunar distance 
has a profound effect on people. It changes your perspective. You get an overview of where you exist, where all humans are on earth. And that is very emotional to a lot of people. And that's one of the core reasons I want to do the space yachting, because we want the richest, most powerful, influential people on earth, captains of industry and all that, to go to space and have this overview experience. And hopefully that enables them and they become, they want to make life on earth better for all people. And that's been prominent with a lot of people who go to space, they want to come back because they don't see any borders, no different countries, just a beautiful, beautiful planet. And when you go lunar distance, you see how fragile earth looks in the giant vast void of blackness, there's this blue ball. And that's it. That's all the life we know of right now. So the overview effect as a perspective of one of the greater values of going outward allows us to think more inward in terms of what it's like to be alive. What can you do to move the species forward? How can you make the earth a better place for all people? So that's, I think, one of the most important parts of humanity moving outward into the solar system in that we get a better perspective of ourselves. So let me, two, two observations that have come to mind. First of all, I don't know if prior to us meeting, you've basically defined mirth within mirth. Everything that you're talking about is a mirth experience. So it's moon and earth experience and it's developing the mirth ecosystem. So this all falls into that construct. It's something that a nine-year-old can get moon and earth. It's something that a 50-year-old or a hundred-year-old could get, not too complicated. So one of the things, I'll share it now because I, I don't think I've ever shared it on this program, and I think it's apropos to what you've just said. In 1968, when the moon, when uh, uh, Apollo 8 went around the moon, uh, they took that one picture of the blue marble. And uh, one thing that is not mentioned, I did find, I don't know if you know this, I did find the transcript of the conversation within the capsule. I, there was nothing on mission and the term that everybody uses for space, but nothing in the instructions for NASA to take a picture of Earth. So there actually was a disagreement about taking that photograph. And it's amazing because we all talk about it as if this person took it because it was amazing. No, he took it, but yet they said you shouldn't take it. There was actually a dialogue about it. And one of the things that I think is amazing, I think back in, the 1960, in 1968, for those who were watching, the Earth stood still and everybody said, we're going to be a different type of people. We're going to treat people nicely. We're, go we're, we're sitting alone. We, we're going to take care of our planet. Look at how limited resources. We're going to be nicer. We're going to take care of the animals. And that didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I've asked thousands of people that question. And I would, I would assume, us on the talking right now, that it really did, we didn't go the direction we thought it would. But what I do share with that is I say to individuals, okay, there have been, I think, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's about 570 people who've been up in the space, 24 from afar, seeing the whole earth. Uh, and then the others in the International Space Station are low earth orbit, and they've looked down, which is 1 11th of the earth as they travel. And one of the things that happens is an individual looks down, the first reaction is let's look to places I know, let's look for Italy, let's look for Germany, let's look for China, let's look for the US, let's look for Brazil. And they realize there is none, they don't exist. It's just land. 
And then they look for the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Mediterranean Sea, and the India, and they realize there's just one ocean. And individuals are profoundly changed, and that's what the overview effect is. Yet, what I say or ask is I say, so what if we sent up, I ask with those 570 people, maybe you could answer this, with those 570 people who've been up in the space, do you believe those people have made it so that the world is better, improved, nicer, we take care of our species, we do all that? Do you, John, think that's true? For a lot of them, yeah. They return and they give talks and lectures and with their own family and colleagues and people so, they know. So there's a closeness, but you'd be surprised because you're a space person, but the people not in space or people who are just on the verge, every single person, every single person will say, no, the world is not a better place because of them. We are just not nicer. We're not kinder. Our, our forests are being deforested. Our oceans are being filled with garbage. We have not really made that transition. So the next question, you answered it differently, is what if 5,000 people went up to space? Do you think it would be different? And I'm assuming your answer is yes, because of tourism, but almost if I would say I've done that with a thousand, well, let's say 3000 people in audiences and whatever, and I've had maybe less than a hundred people say yes. Okay, so let's get to a larger scale, 50,000. And people say, David, no, it's not gonna make, but it's a costly, it's risky. And then I say, well, what if it was United Nations decree? That if you went, if you took office in a in government, that it was your you had to go up into space once and look down before you took office. 218, 212 colonies and territories and countries. Do you think the world would be a different place? And almost without fail, the same answer. It is yes. So I ask why? And they always, they, they get it. It's governance, it's laws, it's policy. So I think I, I like the idea of looking at what you're saying with space tourism. And yet part of my gut is how do we get those, and they're not gonna be every year because once you go up once, you don't have to go again, you might be in office for years, is how do we get the, the people who help create policy, which I know business is part of it. I understand that, I'm not naive to that. But how do we get those people who are creating, creating policy to get up into space and look down once. And that could change our future. Yes. Um, and that's it's, che why it's cheaper. It's cheaper. It's 220 people. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's true. But one of my life goals is starting the space yachting industry and community to do just that <clears throat> get people of power and influence to have the overview experience in space. And two things I want to share with you is, first off, do you know how many billionaires there are on Earth as of 2019? Oh, I would assume there's probably about 220. Well, actually, it's 2,825 as of the end wow. of 2019. As someone whose personal worth is over a billion dollars. So I had the two, right? I just missed the right. zero. Yeah, got add another zero. <laughs> <clears throat> and um, now most of those people are new, most of us billionaires and the wealth 
world, which we study extensively, has changed dramatically in the last two generations. It used to be wealth came from armaments and real estate and uh, family wealth and all kinds of stuff. Now it's IP, intellectual property, essentially. People inventing software, inventing communication, all kinds of stuff. And the younger wealth community is much more oriented towards meaningful life pursuits, uh, which is really good. Yeah. So if we can get more of those wealthy, influential people to have orbital super yachts and eventually racing yachts, and of course, another whole subject area, which is really important, is space sports, which is going to be a huge driver in the space experience economy. And that's skydiving from Earth's orbit, dune buggy racing on the moon, yacht racing around the moon, very close to the surface, so you can feel the vast speed of these vehicles and so forth. Zero gravity basketball. I mean, there's all kinds of things where we migrate <clears throat> the sports industry into space. And the reason that will happen is the sports industry needs eyeballs and people need more dramatic things that are happening and space is part of that whole thing. So that's, that's one whole area that there's a lot of wealthy people. Now that's separate from corporations, some of them worth a trillion dollars just about, right? So they have their yachts and their use of those for their own purposes. Yeah, well, it's just but, like having like having uh, tickets at the, a, a football soccer uh, stadium so that, that you can bring the influential people and close deals and, and oh, be absolutely. different. Absolutely. That's why rich guys, you know, they buy mansions, aircraft, yachts, and sports teams. I mean, that's what that culture kind of does. And it's one, it's showmanship type stuff. But the good news is we're over decades going to have far better and safer access to space so more people can go. And we can use that magic of the overview effect to influence powerful people who, like the politicians, can make changes that are beneficial to life on Earth type thing. So that's, that's all very good stuff. I did want to share something with you also, David. You, we were talking about the moon, and you mentioned Apollo 8. Well, there's a, an amazing quote, which just evolved from that mission about Earthrise. Um, and I can read it right here. Yeah, said, love it, love it. Yeah. <clears throat> so this is Apollo 8. It was December of 1968, a very turbulent year. And a lot of people credit that mission, which kind of saving the year, at least making it feel a little better. So the quote is, we came all this way to explore the moon. Yeah. And the most important thing is, that we discovered the Earth. And that's uh, William Anders, one of the astronauts on Apollo 8. And that related to being at lunar distance you mentioned and separate but connected to Earthrise. So that was to me an amazing observation. We discovered the Earth. And that's by going lunar distance. That's by having that different perspective, which is what space is all about. But another important part of all of this, and a critical part, is we're not going to go to space just as Americans, or just as Japanese, or just as uh, Europeans. We're going together to space. And because it's so difficult and expensive and challenging. And that in itself is another benefit from the space programs and private space enterprise. Last year, we had the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing. And I've actually been very close, good friends with Buzz Aldrin for over 30 years. We've done tons of work together, projects, all kinds of stuff. And we were both very happy how 
that anniversary was celebrated around the world. And one of the things that came out of that, and it happened even during the original Apollo time, was people around the world were saying, we went to the moon, not just the Americans. We as a species, we went to the moon. And that bringing together people for these noble, exciting, amazing, challenging, dangerous, risky ventures is really a key part of what the value of going to space. The space station is actually one place where the United States and the Russians actually cooperate very closely on operating the International Space Station, building it and operating it. The space shuttle visited the Russian space station, this pre-international space station, nine times, docked with it and the crews exchange and all kinds of stuff happening. So we learned to work better at that time with the Russians because we had a space program and a space station and visiting the Mir. So, and we still, and we still have pretty good relations with the Russians as Americans. I say we, I should not say that. Americans have uh, pretty good relationships when it comes to space, even through all the turbulent times that have happened over the past 50 years in sharing and working together for the development of rockets before Elon decided to create his own and the shipping of astronauts to the International Space Station. It's been pretty harmonious over these years. It, it has. And it's been beneficial to the Russians because all the money they made from you know being that transport system. Uh, but that's, that is another valuable thing. There's 16 nations involved with the International Space Station. So that's, that in itself is a very good thing. Now there's also, and I'm sure you've heard of Yuri's Night, and yes. there's a whole wonderful backstory how that all started. And I, and I I know of it because I we've got people on the Mirth team who brought it up in the past year, but I had not heard of it until just recently. So explain it. Yuri's Night was started by Loretta Whitesides and George Whitesides 20 years ago, and George was till recently the CEO of Virgin Galactic. Now he's their chief. A space officer. And what they did back then was it turns out is April 12th is the date that the Soviet Union cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin launched into space and did a number of orbits, the first human in space. Also happens to be Loretta's birthday, or what I call them orbit day. I don't use birthday, I use orbit day because if you think about it, every time you have a birthday, you completed another orbit of our sun. So I always say happy orbit day. Now you're crossing over into the danger zone. <laughs> yeah, really kind of fun. Going to do a whole line of orbit day cards. But what they decided was uh, Loretta and George was to have a big party here in LA. And, you know, we were a part of it and it was a big nightclub. You had JPL guys and Raver guys. It was the wildest thing you'd ever imagine. And it's just continued to grow over years. So it's on every continent, including Antarctica. And every year there's a big party on the International Space Station. They send up t-shirts, Yuri's Night, you know, 2018 or whatever. Uh, and the first five or six years, the Russians uh, were very suspicious. Why are the Americans celebrating a Soviet thing? They thought the CIA was involved, literally. It's a whole big backstory on that. And eventually realized, no, it's just young people having a party celebrating the first human in space. It didn't matter that it was a Soviet military cosmonaut. It was a person going to space and we celebrate that as a step forward for all humanity. The last five or six years, the biggest year's night has been inside the space shuttle pavilion at the California Science Center with the Endeavor Space Shuttle. 
So you get to go there and dance and have fun. We don't dance very well, but at least we have fun uh, with a real space shuttle and 800 of your best friends. So that whole idea of celebrating the first human in space was is really good. And it's another way of bringing people together and sharing a common desire and experience by celebrating such an important human achievement. And the Russians have had so many firsts, the first to yeah. the moon, the first that they, they've had so many. It's amazing that I don't believe in my experiences around the world with Project Moon Hut, I don't believe people know how many firsts the Russians have succeeded at from women in space to a couple in space to the animals in space. They were the firsts. There's just a long, long list of firsts that they have delivered to, to humanity. Absolutely. And the Russians are very proud, they should be, of their space program. And the fact that we collaborate with them is that bridging of cultures and interests. I mean, we were important allies during World War II, for example. I mean, really. So space has the ability, as we reach outward, to look inward, to create a forum, a medium through which we can have international cooperation, where we can dream bold dreams and actually work towards them and have very fulfilling, useful lives as we move our species forward. So, so before I was, I don't want to end. I want to. I've got some questions of uh, that. For, a suggestion first, if I may. Uh, you use the word lunar. Someone like me, that's like fingers on a chalkboard. That's why a Project Moon Hut. We call it a moon. <laughs> I, it might not appear that way to people in the space industry, and I don't know why. But lunar and cislunar and all of these words are very challenging for individuals to grasp and to use. It's a new language to us. And so I use the word moon. So that's just something you, uh, that's interesting or just might be a useful term. It is, the thank, other, you that, thank you for that observation. Yeah, it, it, it's really challenging because it's a new life. I won't name the person, but I'll tell a short story. I'm at, I'm at the National Space Society actually. And I'm hearing one of the people you know, you've got to know him. He's talking about building these um, these petroleum stations in space and on and on and on to be able to get fuel. And I talked to him about using language that's common, just like I am right now. And he says, I get it. I understand it. And he understood what we taught. And I said, great, great, great. And I show up at NASA Ames facility and I walk into a meeting and he's there again. I don't know. We were, we were at the meeting at the National Space Society in, uh, in Los Angeles. And he was back up in San Francisco before I got there. And I walk in and he's talking, see, we want to put nodes throughout space and we want to do this. And then I look at him and said, what are you talking about? He says, we're going to have these nodes. I said, what is a node? And he said, well, we're going to be able to get uh, um, propellant and you're going to be able to. And I said, okay, so I'm going to ask a stupid question. On earth, all over the earth, when you need to get fuel, gasoline, petrol, whatever you want to call it, where do you go? He says, uh, a gas station? I said, yeah, that's an interesting word, isn't it? A gas station. So we all know what that is. I don't know what a node is. And then he says, you know, we're going to do more. We're going to be able to deliver um, repairs if they have some maintenance issues, maybe stay overnight, supplies, food. I said, so what do we call them on Earth? And he says, a truck stop. So we should call this uh, a, um, a propellant stop. 
I said, I don't know if you understand, but when you use a word such as node, I have to do a double translation. I have to translate to what you're talking about. And then I have to figure out what it means in space. And then I have to figure out what you're, how that interacts to the next conversation for the hour. But if you said, oh, you're going to go to a petroleum, uh, a, a propellant stop, I say, okay, I know. And then I can have a normal conversation with you. And that's why I, I've, we do focus on a few things. We don't use acronyms. We don't use, and you're very good at it. You say low earth orbit all the time. I, the word LEO means a translation for me. I don't, I don't remember it as easily, but if you said low earth orbit, so we always use the full uh, description and it's useful. So maybe that's good for you. So, I, and I'm getting to something. The second is you talked about last year being an amazing year and it was amazing year or two, uh, the 50th anniversary for the people in the space industry. However, I was spoke in Luxembourg in this year of the space industry. And I was asked to speak in Luxembourg because the year before 500 people showed up at the space uh, part of this conference. It was amazing. They were so excited. Luxembourg had put money in planet resources and, and I think in possibly deep space industries. And they were very invested in the space industry considering they have the two largest satellite manufacturers in the world there. And guess how many people showed up at the, the next year event? Take a wild guess. 500 showed up that year, the year before. The year I spoke, how much do you think it went to? I, I don't really know. It went to about 75. 75. <laughs> yeah. It went from 500 and drastically dropped. The beginning of the program may have had 80 or 100, but be, by the middle of that event, there was less than 50 people in the audience. And the reason why is because all the investments had tanked. Right. And the challenge with the space industry is not to sell too much hype, that individuals get too excited about something that doesn't come. You know, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, and then, yeah, no, no, but we're talking 20 years from now. Well, that's not like, you told me you're gonna do it, but you're not gonna do it. So this comes down to timelines. And that's the question I wanna to get to. So there was a few points and then a story and a timeline. So when you look at this space tourism industry, and I want you to put on your pragmatic hat. I don't want the, the realistic hat. I don't want you to put on the hat that's going to tell people dreams of things that they can't do tomorrow. If you were to put some real numbers, dates, uh, uh, position, however you want to define it, how would you define this timeline for developing this space tourism industry as you see moving forward? Within the next five years, we'll have that net key next step, which is a lunar flyby. Okay, or a moon flyby. <laughs> a moon flyby. A, a moon. We have a moon flyby, and, and uh, they'll, they'll have tea in the space hut type thing. But um, the uh, that's going to be a big milestone. I'm very sure that they'll have within five years or so. Okay. But within three years, you'll see uh, SpaceX launching four people and a dragon that's converted so it has a bathroom and dining area eating areas for four days uh, in Earth's orbit uh, and that's they're not going to go anywhere other than just Earth's orbit and again four or five years uh, Axiom Space will have two of their modules connected and operational on the space station allowing them uh, because they have extra docking ports 
to have uh, almost 10 people uh, on board the International Space Station uh, at one time. The Russians are doing some interesting things where they may have their own brand new space station. Well, so that's where I was going to jump in is because the, it's they're talking about, which I don't believe it'll happen, the decommissioning of or uh, by 2025 of the International Space Station, but even more so, the Russians have said that they want to be out by 2025 and all the navigation equipment, all of that, the really important uh, mechanisms for running the International Space Station exists in the Russian component. So how do you think that will play into Axion and the Connected and if this doesn't happen this way? Axiom's business plan is to separate their node that connects all their modules to the International Space Station, add to their own space station power systems and control systems and have a free-flying uh, space station. Uh, that's within the next, say, seven years or so. Okay. Uh, Bob Bigelow, if he is able to do some stuff, wants to have his inflatable do you think he do you think he will return to the space industry? Hope so. Okay. Um, uh, I know some stuff that on the personal side of what's happened over there and are hopefully getting things back together. He lost his wife. Yeah, that's what I looked it up recently. He lost his wife early this year and he had closed he had closed down more or less. So you believe it'll be revived and he'll come back. Uh, if his own health holds Hopefully, yes, he's totally committed to doing this. Or somebody will step in and buy out uh, his materials and facility and uh, uh, stuff up in orbit already. He's one person I want to get on to the podcast because I think that he adds a completely um, business perspective to this future that he's been working on for a long time. And actually, if you remember the Project Moon Hut, we have a the box of the roof and the door, the moon hut, then we have uh, industrial park. Then the third one is extended stay, an extended stay hotel. And Bruce Pittman said to me, well, you know, Bruce, Bruce said to me, how'd you come up with extended stay hotel? And I said, well, that's what it needs to be. And he said, well, Bigelow made his money in extended stay hotels. So there was a correlation there that I'd love to have him on. There, there was, I, I got the same impression when I heard you first say that. He, he and his wife also made has thousands of apartments in Las Vegas as well. But if you could partner with Moon Hut, and this is, I, offline I wanna to talk to you all about that. I got some good ideas for you and some networking for your Moon Hut Foundation. If you could partner with Bob Bigelow, that would actually be great. I, 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 and it's okay to be someone online with this. Uh, we're looking, we want to expand the mirth the Project Moon Hut Foundation is to expand this ecosystem. It's a large portion of what we're working on. So for example, we're building this new blockchain investment vehicle out of Zurich. And it, uh, one of the areas that we're targeting are the people who've just made a fortune off of the uh, e-currencies because they could be new investors into the ecosystem of space. And the more we can open up this dialogue to a larger group, the this faster we'll be able to make this transition. So yes, absolutely. I would love to be able to uh, find some of these opportunities to help us to move forward in a, in a faster way. Oh yeah, and we wanna promote what you're doing. So I, I think we can collaborate a lot of areas, but Bob would relate to your extended stay, the simplicity, which is what he does with his hotels, 
the industrial park, uh, all of those things he's done and he relates to it. And I think he'd resonate with your guys' philosophy uh, very well. So that could be a very good uh, partnership there. So, so what else with this timeline? We have three to five, we have three years, five years. You've been in this for a long time. I'm looking, I want to learn from you. When you look, what is the seven year? What is the 10 year? How far do you go out? And when do you say we'll have yachts and we'll have, and we'll have being realistic here, what are the dates you're putting in your head? I'm thinking the first orbital super yacht will be in operation within 10 to 15 years. And it will be financed through a huge corporation that wants to be the first to have that. And in order to do that, you have to also have the infrastructure of an orbital super yacht club, uh, which would invite the richest people in the world to be members of that club, extremely exclusive club. Now, Jeff Bezos has plans and always has since high school of having a resort on the moon. That's one of the reasons he wanted to become fabulously rich so he could do his space work. He's always believed in that. Mm -hmm. And that would probably happen within the 10, 10 year period. It wouldn't be called a resort to begin with, but eventually it will become a, a resort and will also host people who are doing the dune buggy racing on the moon, which yeah. is about 12 years or so. Um, and also filming on the moon too. What's fascinating is, you know, that TV series Survivor? <clears throat> you only see uh, 13 people. That's the 12 contestants and the host. <laughs> there's tons of people, yeah. There's over 200 yeah. that are involved in the film crew and building the sets and security and food and tons of stuff like that. So uh, when you field a major television show or a sports event, say Formula 100, which is closest to what we're talking about in terms of space sports. Mm -hmm. You got to have a couple of billion dollars, but you reach billions of eyeballs and it's exciting. And you are also significantly advancing technologies too, because you have the budget to do R and D and that's going to happen uh, racing on the moon within 20 years. So within this 20, I'm going to stick with 20 year timeframe for okay. the earth yeah. moon system that we're, we're talking about. There'll be all of those. It's easy to say mirth. <laughs> mirth. Okay, mirth. I'm, I'm, in, I'm into it. So on the mirth approach, uh, within the next 20 years, that's going to be great. And what, what we're talking a lot about is we're saying that this new decade, you know, 2020 to 2029, will be seen as the space decade, where a lot of these things that are bubbling around and have been in infrastructure development and all this stuff for decades, some of them, remember SpaceX is now 20 years old, uh, is going to start really accelerating and diversifying and things happening. And that will be like a, a domino effect where more and more things can happen because you have more access and infrastructure and confidence. And that confidence allows you to get better insurance. And that eventually SpaceGuard allows you to actually have people in space in larger and larger numbers. So this decade is gonna be the space decade leading into the space era. And that space era will go on probably forever as we move outward uh, into the solar system. And we're also lucky to be at points in our lives where we're mature and capable and experienced and having influence and generating ideas and challenges uh, through all the stuff we're doing. Whether it's your show, which I think is great, 
and we need to promote it are just all these other things that are really happening. So it is a space renaissance in progress. And once COVID is gone and things are just gonna really take off amazingly fast. So here to, you called it the space era and the way, when we developed this title for this program, I think you saw, we took it from space tourism. We took it all the way to space experiences provoke better, provoke better life on earth. Mm-hmm. That's why we call it the age of infinite. Uh, the reason is, is while I was with, uh, this was with Dennis the, this one time again, Dennis said we should be starting this beginning of um, the a, beginning of infinite or something of that road. And I said, no, it's, we will usher in the age of infinite that this, that it's not about space. It's about mirth. And it's about the fact that by going into space, we have unlimited infinite possibilities and infinite resources, resources from the moon, resources from uh, microgravity, uh, resources from zero gravity and resources from new materials. And that changes the future. So that's why in the introduction, I said, this is a transition to the age of infinite. And that's the hopefulness that brings us back back down to improving how we live on earth for all species. And the storyline, I think for someone who's not a space person, if you say we're ushering in the age of space, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, I'm working on it. But if you said there's infinite possibilities for my children, infinite possibilities that we don't have to kill, there's some statistic out there that says that there are upwards of 200 species per day that go extinct on this planet. There's about 50 million, different numbers, different people. So we have to be inclusive of the future. And that future, I think, is for many individuals, not space, but it is like the age of information becomes the uh, the space, the uh, age of infinite. And that's what we've been in, the information age. Now we move into the age of infinite. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Well, it does, because space is a very small component of this future we're, we're building. Correct. Uh, it's an important one, kind of a sexy one, and one that we're, you know, passionate about. But, uh, excuse the expression, you can't take this all in a vacuum. You know, there's all this other stuff going on. Right. Which is really amazing. Uh, and there's also the social issues that are happening. Yeah. Climate change is a very, very big and real issue. Uh, dealing with the AI. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening that influence and impact everything. It's all connected together. And, yeah, and, sp- and space to me, Earth needs space. Yeah. Think about that. Earth needs space. And it needs it. I. I just had a call this morning with a guy from Switzerland and I went over a little bit of the narrative and he said, oh, I get it. So the innovations that come from space end up improving earth and they address those six mega challenges you're talking about. And I said, yes, that was fast. And he said, no, it's very simple. We innovate for space, we get to space, we get this infinite possibilities and infinite resources to come out of space, but we have your six mega challenges. You said you are, and there's climate change, mass extinction, resource depletion, social displacement, political unrest, and exponential impact or explosive impact. And we solve them because we're innovating for space. And I said, yeah. And he said, simple, the Mirth ecosystem makes sense to me. And he's, he's in the, um, he's a finance person. So that's why I say when you say the space era, I think it's a nicer way to look at it inclusively if we include people who are not space people. Yep, totally agree. And now an interesting example of that is the XPRIZE Foundation, which all started 
as a space thing, you know, winning the X Prize and so forth. And over the last decade or so, it's really diversified into dealing with climate change and oceans and uh, literacy, I mean, all kinds of different things, medical health and so forth. In fact, the smallest part of what they're doing in XPRIZE happens to be space stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're looking at exponential change and acceleration of positive things that heal people and heal the planet and connect people together. So they're doing a, a very good job with all that. And our, our platform has many of these things added into it to improve life on Earth as uh, for all species. So I'm not going to let you get away. And I'm going to remember, you have to tell at least one of your Rockwell tossed out stories. No. <laughs> you were good at, you thought you might have got away with it, but you have to give at least one. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think it was 85 and 86. Yeah. Because we were working on the space station at that time. We had contracts with NASA Ames, uh, my little design company. Uh, it was called Freedom Space Station at the time. So we were getting known by traditional aerospace because we were actually working on the space station and coming up with some pretty good stuff. We won awards from NASA for it. So Boeing, so Rockwell at the time, their downy plant uh, invited me and a couple of my associates to come out and present what we were doing with the space station and what our plans were for the future. So we did that, and then we got, when we talked about the future, we started talking about, I did space tourism and that private citizen, you know, whole thing like that. And it was amazing. I, I, had, a, I had a similar experience with Disney on one time, I, I can tell you about, that the room changed. It was like one of those things in a movie where all of a sudden, click, it's a different situation. As soon as I mentioned space tourism and private citizens in space, the room, and the head project manager said, okay, we're done, come with us. We go, wow, what, what, what? And they literally threw us out the back door of the Boeing plant. <laughs> and it's a big facility. So you had to walk all the way around and go back to the parking lot. All right, say, fine. Well, you guys invited us and you said, well, in the future, right? A year later, the exact same thing happens. They invite us, we're talking about space tourism out the back door. You know, <laughs> I go, you guys invited us and wanted to talk about the future. This could be big business for you guys. You're crazy people. So we decided not to go back to Downey. It's because of this, the, the thing that I ran smack into in 2014 is this language, this um, inbreeding, this uh, inbreeding of ideas, the, the lack, uh, while it, it's, it's about space, it's about exploration, it's about travel and going beyond the stars, it's about bringing data back, it's about experimentation. And what that, this space industry, it's changing. But a lot of the conversation is still about that. And it's starting to evolve into ecosystems and helping the planet, which would plant with planet labs or planet. It is now starting with this new, you'll remember it, the, the new satellite that just went up from, uh, oh, what's the guy's name? He was the first person whose satellite was named after uh, for weather. They just launched it from uh, SpaceX. Uh, I, I will look it up as we're talking, but the language is non-inclusive of this future. And that's where that change really needs to happen. And I think that it's, uh, I've got it right here because it's on a deck. Michael Freilich, the Sentinels, uh, Michael Freilich, which is a, 
weather, <clears throat> a satellite to cover a lot of changes that are happening on Earth, pick up the water levels in the seas, and a variety of other research experimentation pieces. So in 1985, 1986, you didn't fill the narrative. You didn't fill the narrative of space and exploration and science and research and doing. You decided to term it to be human and ecosystem and everything else that doesn't fit. That's why. Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. Remember, 85 was still in the Cold War era. Yeah. The Soviet Union. And what I've observed um, is that there's now a generational change. All of those guys who were against space tourism or even private space enterprise have retired. Some of them <laughs> died off. There's a younger generation in the aero, traditional aerospace industry, even the military, who are more open-minded, uh, more commercial-oriented, and this certainly translates to NASA. NASA is new compared to where it was 10, 15, 25 years ago. Uh, they, they, they saved SpaceX. We wouldn't have SpaceX if they hadn't given them those contracts. And there's a wonderful partnership between NASA and the federal government and private enterprise providing services. Like that happened in the aviation industry, that happened in the train systems. So America happens to have a very good entrepreneurial overarching government private enterprise connection. And when those work well, everything moves forward. But it's really this younger generation running, uh, the military running, NASA running the aerospace industry, which is younger, different, more open-minded, more commercial oriented. And that's to the benefit of the nation. It's a benefit of the world. Uh, and I'm not saying that as an American, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person of the world. So when I look at it, it's a benefit of the world because this Michael Freilich, which was a joint venture, and but because SpaceX could launch it at a, at a cost, measuring sea level rise is important and it helps benefit the future of all species on Earth. And all of these other types of conditions that are out there, whether it be GPS, which is the most one of the most environmentally conscious devices that's ever been existed, it cuts down on the use of cars for traveling. And, and there are just so many tools that could improve how we live on Earth at this time. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Cool. So uh, any, any last words with this, the space economy, space experience, tourism, any last words that you think you'd like to add? Yes, um, this is open to everyone. It doesn't matter if you have a science background or a technical background. We need to learn how do we cook fine meals in space. What is space music, space fashion, space drinks? That's a big thing coming up. So people with a variety of backgrounds who never thought in their lives they could be involved in exploration or science or space can and should be involved and are welcome. We always like to say, welcome aboard. Again, the whole naval approach to things. So the space community itself is changing and maturing uh, and becoming more welcoming to a wider range and greater diversity of people. So that's why it's a renaissance. It's a creative time. It's a bold time. It's an exciting time. And everyone can participate by bringing their voices and talents and passions and energy to what we're doing. It, that's fantastic. Uh, Project Moonha, a billion hearts and minds. 
yep. built in. And we do talk about fashion and all the others. So I will go out over that another time. This was fantastic. You've given me a lot of information. You've given the listeners a lot of information to think differently about space tourism and what it means and where it's going. So I completely appreciate you taking the time to put together a program as, uh, as again, to all you listeners who are listening, you, you don't, the, we create a title and then, which is different than almost all podcasts, we're not 20 minutes, we're not 40 minutes, we don't have a time limit. The guest has to then on his own or her own, go out and figure out what they want to share and teach. And then we come back with no prior knowledge. I don't know anything about what they're going to talk about. And then they give us this amazing material. And I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you out there, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in. I do hope that you learned something today that made a difference in your life, the lives of others, and your future. And once again, the Project Moon Hut Foundation is we're looking to establish a box of the roof and a door on the moon, a moon hut. We were named by NASA, Project Moon Hut. Through the accelerated development of an Earth and space-based ecosystem, which you now understand as MIRTH, and then use the endeavors, those paradigm-shifting thinkings, the innovations, and turn them back on Earth to improve how we live on Earth for all species. So, uh, John, what is the single best way to connect with you? Through the Space Tourism Society, and that's our www.spacetourismsociety.org. Okay, perfect. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can uh, connect with me at david at projectmoonhut.org or david at moonhut.org. We've kind of, we've, we're using both now. You can connect on Twitter at Project Moon Hut or for me personally at Goldsmith. There's LinkedIn, there's Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we're reaching out. We still haven't marketed yet. We're planning on doing that middle of next year. So there's different ways you can get a hold of me. And for everybody out there, uh, well, John, thank you once again. Fantastic. Enjoyed so, it. Excellent program. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, for that said, I'm David Goldsmith, and thank you for listening.